Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Right now and pretty much throughout history, if a student doesn't learn something, we blame the student. We say you weren't paying attention. You weren't focused. You are, you know, are slower than everyone else. You need to try harder. So it's... The onus is on the student to understand. And in the meantime, most professors, I would say, are in a position where they are one of the last bastion of content creators. If we want to, you know, use content creation kind of broadly, professors are one of the few content creators where their audience is chained to their desk and they can't leave. So no matter how good or bad you are of a professor, your students have to stay and listen. The whole education system is very stick driven. If you think about carrots and sticks, like sticks being punishments and carrots being rewards, it's usually stick driven and it's not carrot driven enough. Carrots meaning how do we encourage students to want to pay attention? How do we make the material more engaging, more relevant, more timely so that students can see how this fits into their daily life? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Wes, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, Srini. Thanks. Really excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of uh, one of our former guests, Michelle Florendo, who told me that you had worked uh, with Seth Godin on the Alt-MBA. And then I had a chance to do some more ding. And then, you know, when we spoke, I found out we both had Berkeley in common, which is, you know, super cool. So uh, I wanted to start asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? My parents were both retired pretty early. So as a kid growing up, I didn't really see them um, going to work in in the normal way that other kids saw their parents going to work. Um, I was very lucky in that they were able to be full-time parents for my sister, my brother, and I. Um, before they retired, my dad was a land developer in real estate. And also had a grocery store, one of the first Asian grocery stores in Fremont, California. 
And he was also an insurance salesman. So a couple different things. And then my mom was a student at UC Davis studying computer science. And then she got pregnant with my brother. So she dropped out of college. And she had a couple odd jobs. She worked as a housekeeper for wealthy families in the Oakland Hills. She was a bank teller for a while. Uh, so lots of, lots of different things. Um, but I think the, the path that I ended up taking and the, the values that they instilled in me were, uh, obviously hard work. I think that's, that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty, basic one, I'll say, for people, you know, who grew up with, with parents that were immigrants. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the thing that I really appreciated about my, uh, up, upbringing and my parents is that they were not tiger parents. I think a lot of people, um, assume that they were, um, and I, I'm flattered because, you know, that must mean they think I'm, you know, I, I have my, my act together and they assume that I had tiger parents, but my parents were, never pressuring or strict about, you know, needing to do this activity or this sport or, you know, piano lessons or this or that. I tried a lot of things. My siblings and I tried a lot of things growing up and we quit a lot of things. So at a certain point I was doing ballet, tap, jazz, gymnastics, horseback riding, oil painting, violin, piano, uh, writing lessons, math, tutoring lessons, etc. And um I was so grateful to have all of these chances to try these different things. Um and and some of them I tried for like one lesson and realized it wasn't for me. Like horseback riding. Um I think horses are terrifying huge creatures in person. Like I feel like you see you see ponies and, you know, calendar, I had, you know, a calendar of horses and these little horse figurines that I played with as a kid. And then I, I went to ride my first horse and then you just realize that they're humongous. They're just, they're just huge. Uh, and same with, same with violin. You know, I, I took, I think like two lessons and realized that, that this was not for me. Um, and so having the chance to experiment a lot and quit a lot actually helped me realize that it's completely okay to quit things that you are not that excited about or, you know, not that committed to or don't feel like it plays on your natural strengths. And of course, there is absolutely value in sticking through something and having persistence. But I feel like a lot of times we force ourselves to continue things and this idea of suffering, you know, for the greater good that like suffering equals progress. And it's, it's taken me a long time um, to apply that to my career and to realize that suffering does not necessarily equal goodness. Yeah. And in recent years, I've kind of gone back to, okay, you know, back then I quit a lot of things, tried a lot of things and it was great. Uh, you know, in recent years, I've realized that I want to lean into my strengths. I want to do things that where, where the process and the journey of doing it brings me joy, not some, you know, end outcome of, you know, being the best at, you know, this thing playing Carnegie hall 20 years later or whatever that end goal might be. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of leaning into your strengths, choosing things that you actually like doing and don't consider a slog. Um, and I love seeing friends who love practicing their instruments. They, they love practicing, uh, the cello or 
the violin or they look forward to dance classes or they look forward to horseback riding lessons or they look forward to art classes. Like that is amazing. Like you should look forward to the thing that you do, whether it's a hobby or whether it's work. So uh, yeah, I think actually one of my greatest strengths, which now that you asked this question makes me reflect onto the origins of it. I think one of my greatest strengths is picking battles that I can win and picking games that I feel like I, I have a shot at and would like playing uh, and not necessarily just persisting through something just because it feels like I should. Yeah, I appreciate that so much because one of the, the things that I see in the online world, and this is something that I have said is the ultimate form of bullshit where, you know, you'll see some, you know, prominent person say, oh, everybody should do this. Like everybody should start a podcast. And it's like, well, no, there's nothing everybody should do. It's like, you know, when parents said when we were kids, it's like if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you? And I feel like so often people get caught up in that and they ignore their you know, actual strengths. And as a result, they become average at dozens of things instead of extraordinary at one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think, I think one of it's, it's weird because we celebrate persistence and grit and, you know, working through hard things. And I, I believe that I, I, absolutely think that those things are important. I think we apply it too broadly though. Like we apply it even for things where we should probably quit that thing. Like if you're not that good at something and you don't really like doing it, why are you doing it? There's probably other things that you are naturally better at. And when I was starting Maven last year, you know, one of the things that that I uh thought about was if there is someone else on the street, like a random person on the street, if they worked super hard and um, you know, applied a lot of effort. Uh, if that person could start this company and do what, what I'm, I'm about to do, then I shouldn't do this because working hard is kind of a, I consider it table stakes. Like everyone's going to work really hard. So that's not really a differentiator in my mind. Like there should be some other advantage that I have, some other edge, right? Some insight about this group of people that I want to serve or this, or, um, uh, a track record of doing, you know, solving this particular problem or, um, a special zest in wanting to figure out, you know, this, this problem or whatever. Like there should be some edge that I bring that allows me to do this better than a random person on, on the street. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, the only reason I started a podcast was because my first business partner, Sid Zavara, told me, he said, you're an average writer, but you're a really good interviewer. He said, you know, so I think you should take this little mini project you have on your blog and spin it out as a separate site. Um, and to this day, I still think he's right. I'm a far better interviewer than I am a writer. And the numbers kind of speak for themselves. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um well, let's talk about um, this whole idea of your parents not being tiger parents, because that's so unusual for somebody of Asian, Asian descent. I mean, I'm an Indian immigrant, you know, who went to Berkeley as well. And, you know, like I had the standard Indian kid sort of narrative of, you know, you want a good life, become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. It doesn't sound like you had that experience. So based on sort of the way that you were raised, I mean, as somebody who has you know played a big role in, in kind of, you know, reshaping the way we educate. What would you say to parents who are listening to this about, you know, the educational experiences of their children, especially the ones who are like, oh, this kid is going to, you know, turn out to be a total screw up or they're not going to go to some crazy Ivy League or elite school? Like, what would you have to say to them based on your personal experience? Yeah, I would I would have them look at me now 
which is, you know, moderately decently, decently successful, I would say. Um, and, and reveal that when I was a kid, I had a lot of trouble in school. So if their kid is having trouble in school, you know, they can still grow up to be, uh, to, to decently, you know, have their act together. So I think that's, that's very encouraging. I think even when I look back at my younger self, I'm motivated and encouraged because I remember being in school and having a hard time learning how to read. Um, I remember in, you know, kindergarten or first grade when, uh, you know, teachers would have flashcards and it would have a, it would be like a picture of something like an apple. And then it would say the word apple underneath. And they were trying to teach everyone to sound out the word, right? Like, ah, apple, right? Um, and I wasn't really understanding. Um, and, and I remember my teacher pulling me aside to do extra exercises with me one-on-one in the back of the room when, when everyone else was doing, you know, other things. And, you know, she had this flashcard and there was a picture of a hamburger. And she was like, okay, read this word. There was a word underneath. And I blurted out, hamburger. And I was so excited because I thought I had gotten it right. And, and she was like, no, no, like read the word, sound it out. She started getting frustrated and the word was bun. So she, she wanted me to sound out bun. Um, and, and, you know, that's just one example that I can think of. There's, there's so many where, uh, you know, trying to learn how to read a clock, trying to count coins, and like, and add up coins and dollar bills, trying to understand shapes. Um, you know, that's just, you know, very early on in elementary school, but, but later on, um, you know, math, especially, um, uh, algebra, um, geometry, et cetera, right? Like trigonometry. I really needed extra support. I needed extra tutoring to get these concepts that a lot of students um, were able to understand more intuitively just from class time alone. So, you know, so that's, that's just, you know, understanding what the teacher was putting down. Uh, and then on the other hand, um, there's a whole other bucket, which is standardized testing. I was terrible at standardized tests. So it wasn't like, oh, she was bad at the classroom stuff, but, you know, good at testing. No, I was pretty bad at both. So with testing, um, you know, I always felt like I, I kind of did decently well. I was like, okay, you know, I, I think I got this. And the test results had come back um, for like star testing in California and, and whatnot, SATs, SAT2s, terrible, like terribly traumatic experiences. And and the scores would always be uh, very, very mediocre. And I remember one time in school, this was in elementary school, the teacher called my parents in because my my standardized testing scores were so bad. And they're like, hmm, like, what's going on here? Like, let's talk to to Wes's parents. And, you know, they gave an example of uh, a reading comprehension paragraph. So you remember those, those, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, right? Where it's like, you read this paragraph, and there are five questions that show that you understood what was being said. So it was a story about a boy on a really hot day. The boy's walking home. The boy sees a cool lake. And... Then it was like, what does the boy do next? That was one of the questions. It was like A, B, C, D, E. And I think I chose like D goes home. And the correct (laughs) answer was something like B jumps into the cool lake. So, 
you know, so they were like, okay, let's, let's see like what's going on at home. Like, you know, why is Wes not, not understanding this? Um, and in my mind, it made so much sense. Like the answer that I chose always made so much sense. And I always just wanted a chance to explain to the test taker, like, here is my rationale. Here is why, like, this is actually as legitimate of an answer as, you know, whatever, whatever you think the answer is. And in my mind, it was lakes are dirty. And my parents, you know, when we were growing up, they're like, oh, like, let's swim in pools. I don't know if this is like a, again, like a, a first generation immigrant thing, but they're like, oh, like lakes, like there's like rocks and like, and leaves kind of floating on the surface. And it looks kind of murky and who knows what's underneath there. Pools seem much cleaner. Anyway, so in my mind, it was like, okay, this lake is kind of dirty. And at home, you have soda in the fridge and air conditioning. So go <laughs> home. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're, I, I'm <laughs> laughing and smiling because I, I feel like you and I are, are sort of kindred spirits. I, I struggle to tell time. My parents um, always had to get me uh, watches that basically, you know, only had, you know, sort of digital readouts. Like I could never tell what the hell the time was. That was one of those weird things. Much like yourself, I sucked at math. Um, ironically, I was failing reading in fourth grade and somehow I became an author. Uh and of course, Indian parents are like, Amazing. You know, your, your kid doesn't, my parents are like, yeah, you know, we, he doesn't have a learning disability, just shitty teachers. And of course, 20 years later, I get diagnosed with ADD. Um, but I relate to the standardized test because I probably took the SATs three times, which makes me wonder how in the hell did you get into Berkeley if you were so bad at standardized tests? Yeah. So uh, ironically too, I haven't publicly said this before, but I also recently got diagnosed with ADHD. So that's, I love that you are a fellow 
um, ADHD, I don't know, haver or, or whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, I, I've been actually reading up a lot on ADHD and, um, and it's, it's been so, I don't know what, what the right way to describe it is. It's been, um, a relief, like reading, yeah. reading about and being like, yeah, I see myself in that. Like these case studies of patients who have ADHD, uh, it's like, oh yeah, I see myself there. I see myself there. Not so much there, but you know, that trait expresses itself a little bit differently in me. And, um, it's really amazing to, to understand, uh, more of how our own brains work just in general. So, um, I feel like that it's kind of, um, uh, it's added a different layer to how I view myself, how I, um, process and, um, and, uh, think about laying out my day and whatnot, but anyway, we can get into that later. Yeah. So yeah. So how did I get into Berkeley with terrible standardized test scores? Yes, I have, I have wondered the same thing myself. And not <laughs> only that, not only that, my friend, I also had to apply, uh, at the end of sophomore year at Berkeley, uh, to do my last two years as, as a Haas school of business undergrad business major. As you know, we talked yes, about this a little bit which before, I, which I, I I did not manage to accomplish. <laughs> like I, you know, failed. So, so so no, like that's I'm I'm just as shocked. Uh, and you and you had to have you had to have um good um a good application that showed you know your leadership skills, but also your your um grades for different prereqs. So you know, micro econ, mm-hmm. macro econ, um, intro to accounting finance um uh and yeah so so um i yes was very very grateful that i was able to um make it in taws uh i think i think mainly i compensated um in other ways i think that's probably the best way to say it is i knew that my grades were never going to be um, a differentiator for me. And my test taking ability was also not a differentiator. And that's putting it lightly. It's like, it's not, it's not only not a differentiator, it's a detractor. So I needed to be so much better in other ways to prove that I could be something and that, you know, the school should take a bet on admitting me. Well, so in a system that primarily rewards people based on, you know, academic criteria like grades, I mean, you and I both know this from Berkeley. Berkeley is a shit show of an experience to go through. My dad had a colleague once when uh, I was in high school who said to me, he said, if you survive undergrad at Berkeley, everything else in life will be a piece of cake in comparison. That's hilarious. (laughs) You know, I've had a number of friends who've told me the same thing. Like, so my sister went to medical school. She said medical school was a joke in comparison to undergrad at Berkeley. I had a friend who's a Harvard neurosurgeon. And he said when he got to UCSF, which is the best med school in the country, uh, Mm -hmm. He said that people who come from Berkeley find it to be really easy. He said people who came from Stanford actually struggled with that first year. And, you know, to me, I think the big sort of life skills that come from Berkeley are how to deal with immense amounts of bullshit. Uh, I think, I, you know, I told you the story of my friend who went to Haas, like he didn't get in. So he took all the classes for two years and two weeks before graduation, walked into the dean's office and said, my parents are coming on Saturday. You're going to let me walk or not? And at that point, she had no choice but to relent. And 
Somebody once said, like, what is the thing you learned? I was like, I learned how to navigate bureaucracies and manipulate systems to my advantage. That is the greatest skill that came from being a Berkeley undergrad. And it's funny because my grades were definitely a detractor like yours. Like you've probably seen this, right? When you go into those investment banking interviews or a you know Google interview, they'll ask you one of those damn brain teasers. And if your brain doesn't work like that, you're just like, oh what god, the hell? those. So this is the this yeah. is my favorite one, right? The, the you know how many golf balls fit in a seven four seven? And now I would say, you know what? Unless Richard Branson and I are going to do a bunch of ecstasy together, why the fuck would I need to know that? Like, I can't imagine any scenario in which that will be useful. Um, so in a system where... I'm slow clapping know, over here for you well, <laughs> right now. Yes. Yes. I want someone to ask you that question so you could give that response because it's yeah, me too. so true. So, but when you're in a system like, you know, an elite college like Berkeley, and you're trying to basically compensate for the things that, you know, typically are awarded and and typically lead to progress or to, you know, uh, acceptance. Like, how do you compensate for that? Well, in high school, I started a nonprofit organization. And I think that was a really huge leadership uh, experience for me. Because before then, I had never planned anything bigger than a birthday party before. Um, and so going, going straight into, you know, soft, freshman, sophomore year of, of high school, um, deciding to embark on this huge project, that was, that was a transformative, um, moment and uh, not moment. I mean, I ran it for five, six years. So transformative experience overall. Um, so I think that, Starting Packs of Love, uh, was, was huge. Uh, the, the organization was called Packs of Love. I donated backpacks and school supplies to underprivileged kids, to foster kids, fam- family resource centers, domestic violence centers. And, um, it, you know, in the beginning, the, the way I got the idea was I was cleaning my room and I dumped out all my notebooks, pencils, pens, markers onto the floor and I had a bunch of stuff from, you know, Hello Kitty, Lisa Frank, uh, you know, all my goodies. And I was kind of organizing them. And my dad walked into my room and took one look at, at, you know, this explosion of stationery and said, you know, you are so lucky. You don't know how lucky you are. There are kids who don't have a fraction of this and blah, 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 blah. And usually during his lectures, I would smile and nod and wait for him to go away. <laughs> Um, and you know, this time after he went away, I continued organizing and I, I thought about what he said and realized that I did have more notebooks and brand new pens and pencils than I would ever have a chance to use. And what if I donated some of them to kids who might need them? And so I, I thought of this and was immediately very proud of myself for thinking of this. And it wasn't until I tried executing a couple of weeks later that I realized that turning this idea from an idea into a reality was much harder than I thought. And I realized this because I started going around to local stores in my neighborhood to ask for donations. So I would go to Longstrugs, Walmart, Target, Walgreens, and 
I would ask to speak to the store manager and I would bring this folder with me with a a write-up of my proposal of what I wanted to create. And I would wear my only button-down shirt and some black capri pants to look a little bit more professional. And I would go around and and ask to speak with these store managers. And pretty much every single manager laughed in my face and said, you are a kid trying to get some free stuff. I see you. This is a joke. Goodbye. And it was very demoralizing. Uh, and at the same time, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, I can see how me showing up in your store asking for free stuff um, could, you know, like could could be interpreted that way. Like I didn't have any credibility. Um, I was a, a, a single random person. I wasn't part of an organization or, you know, a school club or affiliated with anything. Like I really was just a random kid asking for, for, you know, pencils, notebooks, and backpacks. Um, and so I understood, I understood their skepticism. So, you know, I ended up trying a, a bunch of different things. I wrote a bunch of letters to, uh, to different corporate offices. You know, back then I really did not have a single clue what I was doing. So I would address a letter to like one Microsoft way to who it may concern. And like, you know, the Microsoft campus is like a mini city with multiple departments, multiple, like thousands of people. I wrote it to like the lobby or something like who knows where that letter goes, probably directly into the trash can. Anyway, I sent out hundreds of letters. I also wrote to backpack companies, backpack brands like Jansport, Eastpack, uh, to try to get donations to Pentel, um, and uh, a bunch of other other stationary companies, um, uh, staples. And anyway, um, none of it worked. So kept getting rejected. It was all great because I, I learned, okay, this is hard uh, and I should keep trying. And so, okay, like I now know what doesn't work. Um, anyway, that first year that I was, that I was doing Packs of Love, I ended up needing to use my own money to buy backpacks and school supplies to donate to a shelter that I had already promised I was going to get them 50 backpacks. Um, and I felt so bad about it. That I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to buy this and, uh, and, and keep trying. The one thing that I did do that was pretty clever was after I donated those, um, uh, initial 50 backpacks, I called the local newspaper and I told them, Hey, here's what I'm doing. Here, here's the donation that I just made. Um, I'm trying to, to build this, um, charity. Um, and you know, if you think this is something that could be interesting to share with the community, let me know. And a reporter replied and was like, yeah, like this is super cool. You're, uh, you know, 15, 16 year old trying to do this. Like this is kind of random and, and kind of neat. So yeah, I'll cover it. Um, and I ended up getting on the front page of the local newspaper. And this was a, a huge win and probably the first win out of, you know, months of effort. So I bought 50 copies of the newspaper and I then went around to all of the same stores who rejected me and mailed this newsla- newspaper clipping to all the companies that replied saying, sorry, we're not able to donate. And the same places that rejected me all of a sudden were interested. Now I had a little bit of credibility. And I also dangled the possibility of, you know, hey, if you if you donate, I'll mention it to the reporter uh, the next time that I'm interviewed that, you know, the store manager at Walgreens in this local store was able to donate 
And, you know, and that'll make you look good. It'll make you seem like part of the community, giving back. Um, and I basically did this cycle, um, and worked up the ladder over the next five, six years until I was getting backpacks, boxes of backpacks shipped to my house and talking to district managers, uh, who managed, uh, dozens of stores statewide to, um, offer donations and was negotiating these deals, um, every summer in preparation for the fall, um, donation time. Um, and, you know, and got other students at my high school involved and expanded into, into donating more and more backpacks every year. Um, and this, this ended up being one of the most formative periods of my life. Um, and it showed me that I could make change happen. It showed me that I could take an idea from being an idea and turning it into something that was real, something that, um, that other people understood and, and change something in the physical world, right? But not just in my own head with, with an idea, but, but something actually in the physical world that I could build something. And it also taught me the importance of marketing. I didn't really know what marketing was until this time. Until I realized that the way that I tell my story, the way that I position this charity, the way that I describe the impact, the way that I align incentives with the people that I am trying to get donations from, the way that I celebrate the behavior that I want to see, um, all of this I realized was marketing. And that was really what, what planted this initial seed of, wow, Marketing is so incredibly powerful. It is literally the difference between people closing doors in your face and saying that you are a joke to people signing thousand dollar checks and mailing you thousands of dollars worth of product because they believe in you and because they believe in what you're able to do. They believe in your vision. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. 
It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. Okay. Amazing. So let's shift gears a little bit. How do you go from Berkeley to working with Seth? And talk to me about the experience of working with Seth, because I've had probably half a dozen people here who've all basically said it's completely insane. It pushes you to your limits. Um, and what he proposes often sounds impossible. Yeah, that's very, very accurate. Now I know that you actually talk to people who worked <laughs> with Seth. Because before I was kind of like, okay, like, you know, some people will will meet Seth, you know, they'll come by our office in Hastings on Hudson and, and sit with him for uh, for an hour and talk to him and be like, oh, I worked with Seth on this and this. Um, but people who really worked with Seth would, would say something different, which is, yes, it's, it's freaking intense and, and completely, um, bonkers, um, and extreme in many, many ways. And so, yes, like the way that you described it just there, um, is pretty much what it was like for three years. Yeah. I, I think it was Willie Jackson or even Seth may have told me that up for the Domino Project, like on, I think, two yeah, weeks I love he told them he was going to fire everybody if they didn't do something. Yeah, uh, that sounds about right. That's hilarious. Well, I, I think that the thing that I <laughs> find job. so insightful about Seth and I think also is so challenging with um, his material for a lot of people is he doesn't give people a map. He gives them a compass. And he basically forces you to figure things out on your own is, is one of the things that I've observed uh, in the way that he teaches. And, you know, like if you look at the negative reviews of any Seth Godin book, the one common complaint I feel like you see is he doesn't actually explain how to do this. And I realized that is by design based on, on the conversations I've had with him. So I, I think that makes a perfect segue into talking specifically about designing transformational learning experiences because, I mean, you and I are kind of like, as I would like to joke, failed byproducts of a traditional education system. Like we've been able to accomplish what we have, not because of Berkeley, but in spite of it. Um, mm -hmm. So when you look at, you know, education is traditional form and also, you know, how people learn online, um, what is it that leads to the kind of transformation that produces the outcomes that people who come out of creative MBA or alt MBA get. I know this. My cousin Rama was thinking about an MBA and I told her not to do it. I said a, a business school is a complete waste of time and money. It doesn't teach you shit about how to run a business. And so I referred her to alt MBA and she got like a massive promotion afterwards uh, where she's now like one step down from the CEO of her company. And then she ended up starting wow. a business too. And Amazing. so one of the things I'm very curious about is, uh, you know, Typically, what I've seen uh, when I when I look at the way that people consume content, particularly on the internet or take online courses, something like eighty percent of people never even fucking log in. They spend like a thousand dollars on something and they never open the damn course. I've seen this, you know, with my own students. Uh, I've seen it in myself. I mean, something changed at some point. Where I just learned how to do this. But the thing is that I think that there's also 
responsibility on the part of the person who creates something to create a design experience that actually facilitates real learning. Because, you know, I, I think now about college in particular, and I think back to things like, you know, Econ 101, which is the, the course that you and I took, right? And this is one of those sort of realizations I came to as I was reading The Wealth of Nations, which I would have never been able to do in college. And that is you, you go into, you know, an econ class at a place like Berkeley and what do you do? You, you know, highlight and underline the shit out of a textbook. Like if you go and pick up a used textbook, you'll see that somebody has like highlighted the entire book as if that's going to be of any use. And then you do problem sets and you think you understand something and then you get to the midterm and they present this idea in a context that you've never seen before. And that's when you realize you didn't actually learn it. Uh, so anyways, given, you know, the role that you have played in Alt MBA, like what is it that needs to change about the way that we design these learning experiences? Like what are the foundational elements that lead people to have transformative experiences, which I realize is a question we could spend three hours talking about. Yeah, I think the biggest, the biggest thing is a, a mindset shift. So right now, and pretty much throughout history, if a student doesn't learn something, we blame the student. We say you weren't paying attention, you weren't focused, you are, you know, are slower than everyone else, you need to try harder. So it's the onus is on the student to understand. And in the meantime, most professors, I would say, are in a position where they are one of the last bastion of content creators. If we want to, you know, use content creation kind of broadly, professors are, are one of the few content creators where their audience is chained to their desk and they can't leave. So no matter how good or bad you are of a professor, your students have to stay and listen. They have to attend your lectures. They have to attend the discussion sections and our, the whole education system is very stick-driven. Um, if you think about carrots and sticks, like sticks being punishments and carrots being rewards, it's usually stick-driven. It's saying, you know, you won't you won't be able to pass this course, so you won't get the credits. You'll have a, a dark smudge on your report card or on your GPA, or you won't be able to graduate with this major. Um, you know, and, and that'll look that'll be looked down upon if you ever apply to grad school or you know, future employers won't like that. So it's very, very stick-driven, and it's not carrot-driven enough. Carrots meaning how do we encourage students to want to pay attention? How do we make the material more engaging, more relevant, more timely, so that students can see how this fits into their daily life or how it shapes them to become a more critical thinker um, on a more macro level? So I think this this mindset shift, this philosophical shift of instructors um, embracing that they are responsible for their students' transformation and embracing that in today's day and age, you have to be 50% instructor, 50% entertainer. Yeah. You have to, you can't, you can't just spew facts because first of all, if you were just spewing facts and someone could just watch a video of you doing that and probably, um, a more engaging professor, uh, a video of a more engaging professor doing that. Um, and so if you're, if you're teaching live, thinking about, you know, how do I embrace that I am, um, both, both 
sharing knowledge and content and information, but also thinking of myself as um, someone who wants to keep their audience entertained. I think that's increasingly important, especially if you are not a professor. Like just, you know, I was, I was using higher ed as an example, but especially if you are um, teaching a core-based course or a self-paced Udemy course and you don't have those sticks, your, your students are taking your course because they want to improve themselves out of their own free will. They're not doing it because they get punished if they drop out of your crypto course or if they drop out of your, you know, uh, leadership and management course, right? So it's it's even more important for the majority of us who are not in the traditional education system, who are teaching outside of it, to embrace this idea of 50% instructor, 50% entertainer. You know, it's funny you say that because that literally is part of the reason that I ask all these completely irrelevant questions to start a podcast because... You know, I, this is something I realized a lot of online marketers overlooked. I was like a podcast is a storytelling mechanism first. Like audio is an entertainment medium first and an information medium second. Like nobody wants to hear 10 tips on how to grow your Facebook following on a podcast. That'd be fucking mind numbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah, I mean, those are my three pillars is entertainment, education and inspiration. Like those are people always like, like, is there a criteria for how you choose? It's like if we can accomplish those three goals, that's a perfect guest. Um and, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes it's just entertaining, you know, and not necessarily educational. But uh, I think if you can get that trifecta down to me, that's like how you create really emotionally resonant content. So one thing that always um, struck me about the concept of Alt-MBA was that there are no homework assignments. There's no lessons. There are no lectures, which, you know, is so different than anything out there. And I, I remember one of our, our uh, copywriters said, you know what, if we're going to teach this writing course, let's do it differently. He said, instead of having you come and, you know, have people watch you present slides to them, make them watch all the lecture material before they come there and just use, you know, the hour that you have with them for discussion. That ended up being invaluable. And it was a hell of a lot more fun for me. Yeah, I think when you have live experiences, you really want to spend it doing stuff that you can only do live. So with first-time course creators, I always recommend that they aim for having 75% of their workshop be interactive. So discussions, debates, critiquing each other's work, giving each other feedback, doing demo days, pitching something, then, uh, then, you know, people reviewing each other's pitches um, breakouts. And then that 25% is lecture or anything that, you know, you really can't think of a way for people to learn this in a more, um, active way. Then you put that as lecture. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the majority, the, the default uh, that, that, uh, most instructors do is think, okay, it should be 75% lecture that, you know, I have a lot of material I want to get through. I want to, I want to tell you all these things. So it ends up being very lecture heavy and, I've never heard a student after a course say, gosh, I wish there had been more lectures. People usually say, I wish I had more time to meet other students. Or I wish we could have done this um, breakout for longer because so-and-so was giving me really insightful advice that I just hadn't thought of before. Um, or so, you know, our group was getting into this really heated debate and I and it was changing the way I was thinking about a couple of things. And that that kind of pushing that you get from working with peers from working on a project hands-on and really needing to 
get into the nitty gritty of it, you know, not stay at a high level theoretical level, but, but really get into it, um, as a group when you're working on a project together, that is so much more impactful and teaches you so much more about how to think and, um, helps you reflect on even what you think, um, than, than having a lecturer, a lecturer talk at you for the majority of the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that you've played a role not only in um, Alt MBA, but also uh, <clears throat> with Tiago Forte as uh, building a second brain, which, you know, that, that has been one of those concepts that's been life changing for me and, you know, a lot of people who truly understand it. So uh, it's funny because you're kind of making me think about the course that I created recently. I have a course on MEM, the note taking app, and people are in it. But what's funny is, the best parts of that course are when I interact with MEM's Slack channel and the people who are there, some of who are, you know, students, you know, some of them are employees of MEM. It's not necessarily like, you know, lecture and it's kind of making me rethink the design of the course, just talking to you. But um, so <clears throat> starting with this idea of, you know, 75% live and, you know, 25% lecture, let, let's just say we're starting from the ground up with something, um, you know, or even using Tiago as an example what is it that you know he does differently that you've seen um, than anybody else that makes the course so much more valuable than, say, other learning experiences? Because you know, I was thinking about this last night. I was um, writing about this idea of taking smart notes, and Eric Wall, who we had here years ago as a graffiti artist, he told me something that I have never forgotten. He's live music has keynote uh, engaged participants, keynote speaking has passive consumers. There's room to be explored in how you bridge the gap, and that had a huge impact on everything I did from the way that I planned events to now thinking about it, even in the context of how you take notes and how you create an online course, I'm realizing that really is, you know, a huge differentiator. Yeah. If you look at evergreen self-paced courses, on-demand courses, they're basically a series of videos. And that is a passive content consumption activity. That's that's pure passive content consumption. Whereas if you look at a cohort-based course or anything with a live component, it's much more interactive. That's why your students are picking a cohort-based experience over a static async experience is because they want that community. They want that interaction. They want to talk about ideas and have other real humans listening and and reflecting back. And they want to hear other real humans' um, ideas on this topic. Um, and yeah, I think that the passive versus active piece is a really um, key difference between MOOCs versus core-based courses. And it's one of the main reasons why core-based courses are growing in popularity. Because MOOCs, it's, you know, people tried it and the completion rates are super low, yeah. anywhere between 7 to 10%. And a recent MIT study said even lower, 3 to 6%. So I think a lot of us have had that experience where we tried doing something on our own. Like it's, I mean, if it, if it could work, it'd be pretty great. Like if I could get myself to watch a bunch of these videos to learn a thing, um, and motivate myself and keep myself accountable, I totally would. But it's the fact that like, that's hard and I can't do that. I've attempted it and I couldn't. And instead committing to a course where there is a start and end date. Like that, even, even that immediately creates a sense of urgency and creates a sense of focus of, all right, well, this course is two weeks. Once this two weeks is over, can't turn back time, can't get my money back. Like I should focus during these two weeks. Even that alone, um, helps me 
um, prioritize learning this thing, you know, long enough for me to actually stick around and learn it. Um, I think that that accountability piece is something that, um, I think all of us need when we're learning something new and when, when things get hard, it's just so easy to, uh, to give up if no one's watching. But if you are, uh, if you've already committed to doing a course and you know that your fellow students are going to be disappointed if you just dropped out, that's often enough to keep you going. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea. You're making me think I could condense a six week course into two weeks and still deliver the same value. Yeah, I think with core-based courses, the exciting thing is that there are so many different ways that you can lay out a course. And the experimentation is part of the um the the it's it's a feature of core-based courses. So with um with a MOOC, for example, you you put a lot of effort into recording everything, scripting everything, polishing it, editing it, and then once it's done, it's kind of there and it's hard to go back and change certain things. But when you are live, the live modality lends itself to experimentation. It lends itself to um, going with what your particular group of students in this particular cohort is interested in. Yeah. And it might be that you went in with, um, you go in with a, a hypothesis that, you know, this part I can kind of go over quickly because people get it or they're not going to be that interested. And then when you're actually, when you're actually sharing it, turns out that your students are very interested in this topic and they want to spend the the rest of the workshop on the topic. So you have that option when you're yeah. doing something live to cater that material to your audience. And I think also with what you said with um, with doing a six-week course in two weeks potentially, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the way that, that Maven teaches course building is very modular. So I see different modular components and parts of a course. And then once you have these components, if your course is six weeks, if you wanted to create a condensed version of that, you don't have to start from scratch. It's not like you, you know, burn everything from your six-week course and then start from scratch with the two-week course. You can reuse a lot of stuff from your six-week course and you put it in a different container where the constraint is now a shorter length of time, let's say two weeks. And then you think about, all right, how do I rearrange these different components to make it something that is shorter? And Or you can even, you can go the other way. You can make it longer. Let's say you wanted to do an extended version, a 12-week, um, a 12-week course. You can also rearrange these different components to stretch certain things out, condense other things. So I love approaching uh, approaching courses and you know projects and products in general with this modular mindset where um, you have that flexibility to um, change up certain constraints, but still reuse a lot of the great stuff that you already created for your course. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Uh one thing that I wonder is what is it going to take to make this a more predominant narrative in traditional education? Because I, I remember talking to Salim Ismail here. Uh, we we're talking about Singular U University. And, you know, I, this is probably the thing that struck me most in our conversation. He said, you know, we can't get accredited. You know why? He said, because we update our curriculum in real time. I was like, so let me get this straight. You're actually teaching people to adapt to current times. And for that reason, you can't get accredited. And he said, yeah, accreditation is a giant mess that prevents, you know, like this kind of stuff from actually becoming more predominant in traditional education. Yeah, accreditation is a whole other beast that I don't know very much about because our 
core-based courses, Mavens, are, and and the ones that I've worked on before that, so Alt-MBA, um, Tiago's course, Build a Second Brain, Rite of Passage, all these courses were non-accredited and were geared towards adult learners who are upskilling, retooling, improving themselves on their own volition. So the whole the whole accreditation piece with, you know, getting college credits to to go towards a degree or, you know, to go towards uh, something more formal is not something that I have a ton of experience in. And I also don't really know if I um, am a huge proponent of that idea. I mean, when, when Seth Godin and I started the Alt-MBA, we talked about accreditation and we talked about credentialing. And there are pros and cons of credentialing. There are some instructors and courses who, uh, where it makes sense to go that path to give a certificate or, uh, you know, a, a document of completion of some sort. Um, uh, so that totally makes sense. But with the Alt MBA, we didn't want to do that. And it, it actually felt antithesis to, um, the whole point of the Alt MBA. Um, it's the Alt MBA's philosophy was, if you are doing a course, you should measure the results of that experience based on how you change afterwards and how your behavior is now different, how your mindset is now different, and the results that you get because you are now an improved person. It's kind of like if you take a sales course, are you, are you, is, is the certificate that you took this sales course the important part or the fact that you can now close sales in half the time <laughs> yeah. and you have, you know, you're way more confident going into pitches, like, <clears throat> right. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really the latter. Yeah, so totally. I see both sides of, of that um, piece. And I think more and more professionals are seeing that um, they don't need to go in the traditional education system and get accredited, et cetera, et cetera, to, uh, or, or get a certificate to see the, the results and value that they want to see from taking a course. They can yeah. measure the worth of that course differently. It's funny you say that because like <clears throat> Nat Aliason has this course on Rome and, you know, I, I went in and I took the whole course and I was like, all right, I'm still terrible at using Rome. But because of that course, I was able to create my note taking course. <laughs> like, I used all the concepts and just applied them to another another tool. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Well, let's talk about one final thing, uh, uh, which should bring us full circle. Uh we started out kind of talking about moving towards the things that you are naturally good at. And I think a lot of people ignore that advice uh, constantly because you have this sort of, you know, thing where social influence plays a big role. Like personally, I think the biggest bunch of bullshit to ever come out of any online online marketer's mouth is everybody should start a podcast. And I'm like, no. If you're an introverted visual artist who doesn't like talking to people and you're amazing at doing that, don't start a podcast. If you suck in front of the camera, don't start a YouTube channel. And yet the problem is that if somebody who's highly influential says this, people treat their word as gospel instead of guidance without thinking about this or questioning it in the context of their own lives. How do they actually develop the capacity to consider context in when it comes to prescriptive advice? Oh man, this is a really, really great question. I often think about this when I tweet something and then the comments are, you know, people who are, are pointing out, um, an edge case or, you know, a, a different situation and, and th they're basically applying what I'm saying too literally. Um, 
And, and usually I agree with those comments. It's like, yes, I had 280 characters, but, but otherwise I, I agree with what you're saying too. Like there are multiple ways of looking at something. Um, I think developing that sense of judgment is very, very important. I've thought a lot about how to help people develop this, this sense of judgment and intuition around how do I tell if a piece of advice works for me? Cause if you think about it, we get conflicting advice all the time. We simultaneously hear patience is a virtue and good things come to those who wait. And then we also hear that, you know, you have to go out and get the things you want. Or, you know, if you, if you wait too long, life just passes you by. And it's like, okay, well, both things are true, but applying it and having the wisdom and judgment to apply the right piece of advice to your own situation is a skill in and of itself. Yeah. So I think that this is, yeah, this is, this is a, a, a pretty, pretty big um issue and and going to you know going to the that's kind of the macro point but going to your your immediate question of um you know certain people shouldn't start podcasts or certain people shouldn't do certain things everything takes longer than you think this is one of my mantras and i am on a, at least on a weekly basis reminded that everything takes longer than you think so the reason you want to do stuff that you are good at and actually like doing is because everything takes longer than you think. If you thought this was going to be an easy piece of cake overnight success, then yeah, if this were kind of hard and you didn't really like it, but you were going to see the light at the end of the tunnel right away, then then it might make sense to do. But because everything takes longer than you think, even for something that you are good at and like doing, there are going to be rough parts where you don't really feel like continuing and where you question whether any of this was a good idea at all. So leaning into your strengths and doing stuff that comes more naturally to you where you have an edge um, makes it all a lot more joyous of a process, which means that you are more likely to stick with it long enough to actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. I appreciate that more than you can possibly imagine because I, I just, you know, when I see people follow prescriptive advice, they don't consider context. You know, And part of the problem is that are almost all our sort of role models are outliers, right? Because they're the people who write books. They're the people who appear on shows like this. You know, they're the ones who are on the covers of magazines. You know, we had Justine Musk here. And uh, probably one of the things that struck me most that she said about Elon is she said, I don't want to get all deterministic, but I don't think this is something you can learn to be like this, you know, to think like this. That's something that is innate, you know, and yet you see all these articles on, you know, sites like Medium. It's like, oh, 10 ways to be like Elon Musk. And it's like, yeah, but you're not a fucking genius. So maybe that's not going to work for you. Yeah, you can do those 10 things and any list of things and not still be hit. I think that that's, that's a, a, something that struck me a lot when, um, when I was working with Seth, because a lot of people would, um, admire Seth and, and want to imitate him and they would try to write in his style. So, you know, short, short daily blog posts, right? If you look at what, what does Seth do? Okay. On the surface, he does short daily blog posts. And so a bunch of, of people would start doing short daily blog posts and it wouldn't really work. Like it, it, it just, it didn't land the same way. And the reason is because you're not the Seth. short daily blog posts, <laughs> right? It's but but beyond that, it's that's the tactical expression of a deeper underlying skill set, principle, personality, etc. That 
is uniquely Seth that if you just copy the tactic, you don't, you're not replicating the other stuff. The other stuff is the important stuff. And, and that's the underlying stuff, which is Seth is incredibly insightful. He sees things differently and is able to capture and articulate those insights in a way that feels mind-blowingly um, uh, breakthrough, but also weirdly obvious at the same time. Like you <laughs> yeah. read it and you're like, oh my God, like, of course, why didn't I think of that? Like, that's like the best way to say this thing that I've been feeling all along, right? He He's able to distill complex ideas into really simple, yeah. um, impactful uh, concepts. Um, and he's an amazing writer. I think that's the other thing. It's like, you kind of, you kind of know this because you're like, okay, well, he's an author by trade. Yeah. He's written 18 best-selling books. So you, on the surface, you intellectually understand that he's a great writer. But I think when you read his posts, it's, he's so good that you don't think of him as a writer. You mm-hmm. think of him as an insightful person. It's kind of like a great salesperson. You don't think like, oh, that person's a great salesperson. You're just sold. You just love them. You just want to buy from them. You just want to move forward. You don't think like, oh, they're so good at sales. You know, mm-hmm. so so when you read set stuff or any really good um, writer stuff, you don't think, oh, they're a great writer. You just think they're a smart person or they're an insightful person or they're, you know, they're a thought leader or whatever. Um, so I think when people when people mimic and replicate surface level tactics without understanding the um, the underlying constraints and assets that the original person is working with, then then you that that's where you get into trouble. I think what you need to do is assess your own assets and constraints. What do you bring to the table? What are you good at? How do you see, see things differently? What are the things that um, that are constraints that you want to work around? Because Seth has constraints also. He's not good at everything. You yeah. just don't really know them or see them because he has, he has designed his work around that. And so similarly, we all need to look at ourselves, stop looking so externally, trying to copy other people's service level tactics, and instead look at ourselves and take stock of your own assets and constraints. It's funny because like this is literally the ethos of everything that I've built Unmistakable around. I mean, my you know book was called Unmistakable. Why only is better than best? And I've always jokingly said we could have also titled that book Everybody is Full of Shit. Um, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have published it, but that's effectively what I said. I was like, I just said it in a really polite way. Uh, because, you know, you point out mimicry and I that was, you know, what I saw over and over again. Right. I th- to this day and I still see it, you know, like I, I had a friend send me about 13 potential podcast guests. Um, and I remember, you know, and I'm probably sure this in trouble before I put up all of their websites, you know, in one browser, all tabs. And I looked at all 13 of them and I emailed her and back and I said, I don't want any of these people because I don't know what the hell any of them do. And it sounds like they all do the same thing. And I saw this, uh, I saw this in particular with certain groups, uh, Marie Forleo's B-School being one of them, where people basically, you know, try to copy her style, you know, her business, and then they wonder why they're not getting the same results. And it's like, um, go, you know, take a deeper dive to to your point, like they ignore context. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great example. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this because um, clearly you and I are on the same page about a lot of this. This seems like a really deep rabbit hole. So uh, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Ooh. What makes someone unmistakable? I think their ability to turn bugs into features. 
Uh, I think all of us are dealt a certain hand and, um, have certain personality traits a lot of times that we wish were different. Uh, you know, I, for example, spent many years wishing I were less introverted and lamenting about how that, uh, you know, wasn't beneficial in the workplace, wasn't seen as a, as a positive thing necessarily as a leader. Um, and it was really only when I embraced the idea of turning bugs into features that I thought about how a lot of the reasons I've been successful is because of my more reflective nature, my self-awareness, my, um, my instinct to think about something, um, and want to, want to process it instead of just, you know, blurting something out. And, uh, this applies to products too. You know, I think a lot of times we, we have a product and we think, Oh, I, I wish this were different or I wish this were better or, you know, it didn't have this or, you know, this product is too complicated or this product is too simple. But if you turn a bug into a feature, there are people who are looking for a solution that is very simple. There are people also looking for a solution that is more complex, more robust, more customizable. So, you know, I see this as something that, that I apply, you know, to myself as a person, but also to any product that I'm, you know, responsible for selling for marketing. And this idea of turning a bug into a feature, I think is, is something that, um, can, can really take every leader to the next level. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to? I have a website at westko.com and a newsletter that I send out every once in a while. I am on Twitter at Wes underscore KO. And then Maven is at MavenHQ and Maven.com. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.